Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Atkinson. He is president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, a public policy think tank based in Washington DC in the US that promotes policies based on innovation economics. He was previously vice president of the Progressive Policy Institute. Is the author of four books, and today we're going to focus on his book, Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. So, Dr. Atkinson, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Ah, thank you, Fernando. My pleasure. Okay, okay. So, it's interesting that, uh, I mean, in, at least in certain places, I mean, the U.S. is an, a good example of that, as you talk about in the book. Uh, people have this idea that small business is beautiful and big business is ugly or bad, or it's just about people creating monopolies. And sometimes people even think that big business only becomes that because there's some form of protectionism or something like that and they exploit the workers but in your book you present a different narrative let's call it but, but let's start with that Where, how far back in history can we go and see people saying that small business is what we should we should strive for and it's better than big business and things like that sure so there's a widespread view in the united states but but even more so in europe mm -hmm. uh, and in some other regions around the world the latin america for example that somehow sees this, uh, it, it really goes back to this kind of old uh, progressive or, or even socialist view that somehow that, you know, capitalism is suspect and big businesses are capitalists, but somehow small businesses are proletariats. Uh, you know, they're not capitalists, they're, they're, they're part of the working man and women. And so that really at the core of the philosophical, that's the core of, the, of kind of the, the view is, well, we're siding with the working man and women, and, and therefore small businesses are more like that. There's a couple of things wrong with that. And the first thing wrong with that is that, as Mike Linda and I say in, in our book, Big is Beautiful, if you're a progressive, really the, one of the most important things you should be focusing on is how well our workers doing. And on every single indicator that you can find, at least in the U.S. when we looked at this, big business is better for workers than small business. Their, their pay is uh, significantly higher. Uh, they're more likely to get benefits, which is a big deal in the U.S. as opposed to Europe, where they're more state-directed benefits. Uh, they're, they, they're, they injure their workers less because they take safety more seriously. They pollute the environment less. Uh, they're better at employing women and minorities. Uh, you know, you just go down the list. Big companies treat their workers better than small companies. And then you say, well, why? You know, well, if that's true, why, why still this other view? And well, part of it is this view that somehow we, we don't want excess profits and big companies obviously must have high profits. Again, when you look at that data from in, in the United States from the Internal Revenue Service, Small companies, uh, small corporations are actually more profitable than large corporations are. So all these kind of things that people have in their mind just aren't borne out by the facts. 
Um, we used to be a, a, a country that, in at least from the say the 1940s, uh, you know, in World War II, it was really big business that was what Franklin Delano Roosevelt called the arsenal of democracy. Uh, it was big business that you know gave us the weaponry for the Allies to beat back the Nazis uh, and the Axis powers. You had companies like. Ford Motor Company that took car plants and turned them into producing uh, uh, aircraft uh, for the for the for the Air Force very very quickly. So for a long long time, you know, from the 40s really up up until the 70s, most Americans thought big business was pretty good. Uh, but as times have changed, which we can go into for a number of different reasons, uh, now the mythology is that small businesses are good and big businesses are bad. And and again, that's even more so in, true in in Europe. Mm -hmm. So let's focus on that last point. When and how and why maybe people started saying that small business is good and big business is bad and things like that? Yeah, so you had a number of uh, different sort of forces in that, and some of them coming uh, from the intellectual or idea side. So uh, Schumacher, a famous uh, Economist wrote a book called "Small is Beautiful," which is the, our, our our book was a, was a, was a take on his book, and uh, his book was essentially, you know, oh, appropriate technology and, and small businesses are good, and and you know a lot of his examples were from India, um, which is really bizarre when you think about it. Uh, India is a country with with maybe a per capita income of 15 percent of Europe or the United States. Why? why we would look to India as an economic model uh, because their economy frankly is, is you know you know it, it, it's a low low income economy with many many small businesses so that was part of it EF Schumacher's view um, on top of that you had a guy in the US named David Birch who was a professor at MIT and he wrote a very famous iconic study that purported to show that over about two-thirds of New firm, sorry, about two thirds of new jobs in the United States came from small business, and so back in the late 70s, when the U.S. economy was doing poorly, partly because of the OPEC oil embargo and the the, the competitive challenge from Japan, everybody's looking, how do we create jobs? And Birch comes out and says two thirds of these are coming from small businesses, and everybody believed it and still believe it. It turns out that was just completely wrong because of a, of an error he made. Uh, two th uh, it was about two thirds of small uh, two thirds of jobs came from small enterprises, mm -hmm. and, and by that I mean uh, uh, let's just say you're a General Motors plant and you have a, a, a little factory that has 50 workers. Birch would call that a small business. It's not a small business. It's a small establishment, uh, and so when you control for that and really look at businesses rather than establishments. You know, small businesses created a little bit more, maybe like you know, 39 sort of 38 percent jobs instead of what their share would have been a 35 or something like that. But that mythology is really stuck in people's mind. And small businesses where we create jobs. It turns out when you look at the data more recently, that's just not the case. And then the last thing really is, is just sort of it goes back to this view. I think that it's really deeply held in America and also in Europe that we want to side with the little guy. Uh, you know the, the the average man and or woman in the street. You know they're struggling. They're working hard, and and so politicians love to sing the praises of small business. It it it, it you know goes well with voters. 
uh, even though it's just again, it's not really based on any evidence. So I think you put all that together, and that's 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 a big big part of it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that Schumacher referred to uh, the uh, the situation in India. Because, I mean, talking about third world countries, for example, and particularly Africa, there are many people that say that probably uh, creating small businesses through uh, micro credit, let's say, in Africa, um, it, uh, it allows for people to raise out of poverty. But, I mean, is that true or... Uh, I don't believe it is. We looked at uh, we looked at uh, there's a chapter in the book where we looked at development uh, or, or development issues in, in emerging economies. You know, if you want to understand the probably the single best indicator, we just pick one indicator, but that's not per capita income to say how likely is this to predict what per capita income is in a country? It's the share of small business. So the higher the share of small businesses, uh, the higher the share of jobs where, uh, where people are in a small business, working in a small business, the, it is the, uh, much more likely to be a poor country. So rich countries have a higher share in big businesses. Small, uh, poor countries have a much higher share in small businesses. And the reason is they're, just, they're, they're what they call in the U.S. mom and pop businesses. They're, they're, they're just eking out an existence. They, they, they don't have the capital to get any kind of scale. So I actually think that the whole microenterprise uh, movement was fundamentally a mistake. It's not to say that here and there you couldn't do a program and it might help a little bit. The problem for developing and, and really the, the least developed countries is really about productivity growth. It's about having higher value added. It's about being able to do things that are more productive, and that just takes scale. And I'm not talking about a 10,000-person firm in, in, in uh, you know, in, in, in Kenya uh, with, with an enormous amount of capital, but I'm talking about some scale, you know, 100 workers, 200 workers. You know, that's really going to be, that's the future of these countries if they want to develop. I mean, just take China, for example. I mean, that's a classic case. China, one of the fastest growing economies in the world over the last 50 years, and it was you know, partly because they embraced the larger firms. Mm -hmm. When you mention big business, are you also including perhaps some companies that are outsource companies that work for big companies? Because, for example, there are several countries where uh, U.S. companies have workers producing their products or even in call centers, it's very common that these are tasks that are outsourced. I mean, is that included in the picture of big business or not? Yes, it is. So if you were, um, if you were a big company and you've outsourced to a specialized sort of food service company or a call center company or whatever that might be, um, then yes, those, and those have more than 500 workers, then yes, that would be a big business. That really, from the evidence, doesn't, it, it, it's not as if that factor changed, changed the composition of firms. It was usually big firms outsourcing some things to other big firms, and so the firms overall were still big, but yes. But again, you have to look at some of the reasons for that. Now, I'm not saying it's the only reason. Some of the reason for that is to get to a two-tier wage structure where maybe you have a unionized structure in, in autos, but you don't want to pay 
people in uh, in the cafeteria the same amount of money. So absolutely some of it is that. Uh, but some of it is efficiency. Uh, call centers, for example, you, you can get better technology, use more efficiency. So it's a combination of factors. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and another argument that I think people who defend small business bring to the table uh, to the table frequently is the fact that they associate big businesses with the increase in income inequality because i mean people that are owners or ceos or whatever that have high positions in big businesses uh, over time have been uh, i mean amassing more and more money and having bigger and bigger paychecks does that make sense sure and you know i again you know one of the challenges with this book is is just, we're not defending every big business. We're not attacking small business. We're, as we can talk about later, we're arguing for size neutrality. Um, nor are we saying that everything big business has done is good. And so I think the, the increase in CEO salary, CEO compensation, a lot of its stock options, I, I think it has been a mistake and, and, and harmful uh, to a lot to societies. There's too much inequality there. But I think we have to understand, though, when you look at the evidence, for example, in there was a study done a few years, about 10 years ago or so, and it looked at uh, that the top, I think, 15 hedge fund managers in the United States made more in one year than all the Fortune 500 CEOs combined. So, and that's in capital gains and, and other earnings as well. Uh, so don't get me wrong, I, I think CEO salaries are too high, uh, but the real cause of income inequality is, is much more, at least in the U.S., on the financial sector side. Uh, enormous amounts of wealth in the financial sector side, a lot of it for really doing nothing other than being able to bet better than somebody else. So that's number one. Number two is... Um, uh, there's a lot of inequality among small, you know, if you look at sort of the, the, the salary of small businesses, uh, small business owners, there's a lot of small business owners that are doing very, very well. I mean, making millions and millions of dollars a year. If you were to combine, you know, 50 of those companies and then take the CEO salary, it would, it would be more than what the CEO of, of, say, a big corporation would be making. So I, I don't think that you get all that much, um, more equality by, you know, atomizing a bunch of companies and making big ones small. The other thing is, again, there's a bunch of really good uh, economic literature that we reviewed from a number of scholars that suggested that uh, the more economies had bigger firms, the less growth of inequality there was. So it's actually the opposite of what a lot of people think. Uh, so I don't, I, I take inequality very, very seriously. I think it is a big problem, but I don't think this notion if we take the hammer of antitrust or competition policy to break up these big companies, that somehow we would get more, more equality. Um, and that goes to this other point of not just CEO salaries, but, but, but uh, capital gains and dividends. So in other words, profits. Well, we've got these big companies, there's too much profits, and, and therefore if we could reduce the profits, there'd be more money for, say, the average worker. You know, again, we, we, we wrote a, we, we, we dealt with that in the book, but we also did a more in-depth study recently in a, in, in a report on, a, on the ITIF website, looking at the trend in profits. And what you find in the US, if you look at profits over the last 60 years, what you find is that the growth of domestic non-financial profits as a share of GDP is actually 
you know, it's lower than it was in the 1960s when we had tougher antitrust laws, and it hasn't grown that much. It may be maybe half a percent of GDP, a very, very minor amount. What's really grown is financial sector profits, um, and, and to some extent foreign profits. But foreign profits are good for the U.S. They're good for everybody. They might not be good for people in foreign countries, but they're good for the U.S., uh, so again, the evidence just really doesn't suggest that I, I wouldn't put my I wouldn't put my efforts to get more uh, equality and, and, and less in, sorry less income inequality. I wouldn't put it on the, the size of, of, of firms. Uh, I'd put it on other factors. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, I mean, your approach is one of size neutrality, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before that, still focusing on income inequality, I mean, perhaps this is wrong. Please correct me if it's wrong. But it seems to me that uh, when we talk about income inequality and the rise of it over the decades, we are focusing mostly on the Western world or the first world countries, because when we talk about countries like China uh, and India, even more recently, and others like that, I mean, the rise of the middle class has occurred recently. And I mean, many, many people have been lifted out of poverty. I'm not sure if big business play the role in that or not, but. Well, I mean, first of all, the income inequality in China is, is probably at the same level now as the U.S., if not worse. So, um, but in terms of um, lifting people out of poverty, absolutely. There, there's really only one thing that's lifted people out of poverty over the last hundred years, uh, sorry, as, as a group, uh, as overall in society, and that's, that's increasing productivity growth. So we, we can only consume a certain amount of things based on what we produce. So we, you know, as a society, we only can consume what we produce. And what we produce is based on productivity. And you know, large corporations or large businesses, on, by evidence, are much more productive. There's a, there's a graph we included in the, in the book uh, from the European Commission, uh, very good data from the Commission. And it has productivity by firm size. And it's basically a, a line that goes like this, even though it's a set of bar charts. But you know, the smallest firms are the least productive. The biggest firms are the most productive. Um, why would that not be critical to wanting to have a higher standard of living? You know, this is something that always frustrates me when I go to Europe and I talk to European colleagues. Uh, they, all, they say things like, well, small businesses is the, is the backbone of the, of the EU. Uh, and I say, well, then, you know, your backbone's pretty weak because uh, the fact that Europe has such a high ratio of small businesses, so many jobs in small businesses, is hurting European productivity growth and income growth. Uh, the, the evidence is, even from the commission, is very clear about that. So, um, you know, one last point on, on, on the income inequality. There's a very good study I was able to get from our Bureau of Labor Statistics, and I was able to get data. It wasn't on firm size. It was on establishment size. So you, know, you, you take a, one establishment. You, the bigger the establishment, uh, the big establishments compared to smaller establishments actually had less income inequality among the workers. So the highest paid worker in a big establishment compared to the lowest paid worker, lowest decile was smaller. So again, this notion that income inequality is inherently about large firms, again, the evidence doesn't suggest that. Mm -hmm. And in terms of policies, should we help new firms get off the ground? I mean, should we have 
public policy that supports that or not? Yeah, so one of the key points of the book was we argued that countries, governments should switch their policies away from supporting firms based on size uh, and supporting firms based on age. In other words, you know, helping some small firm that's 30 years old that has 15 workers and has no intention of getting to 16 workers and is, you know, paying their workers badly, isn't regulated, da, da, da. Why would you want to do that? That's very different than saying we should try to have an environment that makes it easy for somebody to start a firm and, and hopefully to grow that firm. So I 100% agree that we should, you know, it's all, all governments should have good policies to enable someone to start a firm. But I would put those, uh, I, I'd kind of have a sunset provision that after five years, then you got to be treated like a normal firm. So, we don't want, you know, in the U.S., for example, if you're a small firm under 15 workers or so, it's some different numbers, it's legal to discriminate on the basis of, uh, of age and, uh, and religion and, and, and race. And like, uh, you don't have to protect your workers as much. You know, why would we do that? Are we saying that workers who work for a, a firm with 12 workers, they don't deserve the same kinds of protection that a worker for a thousand work, worker firm has? So my view would be, yeah, a new firm, sure, let's, let's give them a, a little bit of more flexibility and room to grow. But once you get to be a certain age, you need to be complying by all of the same rules and protections that everybody else does. So, in, at least in the US, I mean, I'm not sure if in Europe it's the same, but regulations for small businesses are weaker? Well, it's worse in Europe. Oh, much worse in Europe, yes. But yes, absolutely. In the US, regulations are weaker. Uh, taxes are, are lower. So, there, you know, if you're a small firm in the US, again, on average, uh, you pay fewer taxes than if you're a larger firm. Uh, you are, your regulations regarding pollution are less. Your regulations regarding worker safety are less. You know, you don't have to provide health insurance. I mean, just across the board, this is actually much worse in Europe. I mean, Europe, the Commission, European Commission, actually had this sort of small business friendly regulatory. I forget what they called it. Uh, we write about it in the book, and it's basically just saying let's not regulate small businesses very much. There's a very good study uh, by Nick, uh, Nick Bloom, uh, Nick, uh, John Van Rienen and Nick Bloom uh, about French firms. And what they find is that there's an inordinate number of French firms that have 49 workers. Now, why is that? Sort of statistically, you would expect, you know, you know, sort of random distribution. And it's because in France, when you get to 50 workers, you get slogged with all of this new th you know, new taxes, new regulations, you have to form labor unions, da, 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 da. And so all these firms, they just go to 49 and then they stop. Uh, because and, they, and, and why why that number? Is, that a, is there any particular reason for that? Well, they have to, you know, same thing in Portugal, by the way. Portugal has all, you know, if you, if you get, if you get in, in Portugal, I think it's, uh, I can't remember the number, you know, 50 workers or something like that. You have to have, have unions and things like that. Uh, and it's just because some people just, they're like, they have to pick some number. Uh, some numbers are, are 50, others numbers, other, for other regulational, regulation exemptions, there may be 20 workers. It just, people say, well, it's got to be some number, it can't be, can't be nothing. 50 seems reasonable. This notion is, well, you get the 50 workers, probably you can afford to pay all these regulatory expenses, but if you have 49, you can't. 
but the reality, you know, the, the effect is that you're essentially you're tilting your economy more towards small firms. They, they, they because of this, you know, they pay less taxes. They have fewer regulations. Just, it's just so much easier for them than, say, a company with 100 workers that you're that Europe in particular, but also the U.S. Ha- will have more small firms than is economically efficient. Now, to be clear, that's not to say if, if you had regulatory parity across the board, there would still be a boatload of small firms. Uh, you know, we're not going to have corporate restaurants, for example, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or corporate dry cleaners, you know. But at the margin, there would be more workers working in big firms and fewer working in small firms. And, and that would be good because there would be higher productivity and the workers would have better jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. And these policies that people develop and that apply to small businesses, uh, I mean, do they derive just from the fact that uh, for the reasons you've already mentioned and we've already talked a little bit about the history via- behind it, uh, people, politicians in Europe, in North America and so on, believe that small business is better just because of this or does it have more to it? Are there any other reasons behind it or not? Yeah, so you have what economists call path dependency. And so as you sort of favor small businesses more, uh, you get more of them and then you feel even more dependent upon them. And so in Europe, for example, if if you say things like, I don't know, uh, you, you know, you're, the Europe should promote artificial intelligence. Uh, most people, most European, we should help small firms with artificial intelligence. And why is that? Because we have a lot of small firms. Well, well, maybe you shouldn't have a lot of small firms. So, so you have some path dependent people. You, you, well, we have small firms, so we should help small firms. And then you have more small firms. But I think the second thing is just political. Uh, so in the United States, uh, where, which I know better, in terms of the, there are very powerful lobbies for small firms. Um, there's a thing called the National Federation of Independent Businesses. And whenever there's a regulation, uh, they're up on Capitol Hill, in other words, in our Congress, lobbying and saying, oh, you can't make us give our workers uh, health care. This, this would destroy small business or, you know, you name it. Uh, you know, my, my favorite of all time was um, a special rule. We, we, we even have a small business administration. So can, can you imagine having a big business administration in the U.S.? So, so we have an, an agency of, 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 of the U.S. government whose job it is to help small business, including avoid regulations. My favorite one was where they advocated and lobbied for a provision for uh, aircraft repair sh- uh, companies. So these are companies that would repair airline, air, air, uh, air, uh, you know, planes. And they advocated for a regulation that would be weaker for small businesses. So if I'm flying on a plane, I kind of don't really care whether it's, it's uh, I, I really don't want my safety to be compromised. Well, at least, at least when I'm going down in a plane crash, I know that this, this small company was at least was able to employ a few people. I mean, why would you take something as critical as aircraft safety and give them a lower standard? And the answer was, well, because we love small business. And that to me is, uh, is sort of, you know, to me, the sort of most absurd example of that, where you would compromise people's safety in airplanes because you want to help small businesses. I mean, how, how ridiculous is that? 
And why aren't people talking more about this? I would imagine that, I mean, you talked about uh, small businesses lobbying for that kind of uh, regulations or uh, weaker regulations for them. I mean, big business sometimes also lobby the government and and they have more money. So why aren't people talking more against small business? Well, a couple of things. You mentioned, you know, big business has more money. Um, if you come to ever come to Washington and, and you go near near uh, Capitol Hill, where our Congress is, you will see a giant building about three blocks from the Congress, a giant building. And on the top of the building, it says the National Association of Realtors. So it is a block long building that's probably eight stories tall and it's owned by the National Association of Realtors. Now, they're incredibly powerful, and they've been able to lobby against, and most realtors of the U.S. maybe have, you know, 30 or 40 workers in their little, in their little shop or whatever, uh, and they're able to lobby against all the rules that they don't like. But the reason they're so successful is not because they have a lot, not just because they have a lot of money and they have their own building. They have thousands and thousands of, of uh, uh, or, you know, thousands of, of, of voters who work for them in each congressional district. So there's a lot more uh, of them, and, and they'll, they'll go out and, they'll, and they'll, they'll lobby their local member of Congress and saying, you know, we vote and we have a lot of us. So big business doesn't have that. All big business has is money. <laughs> they don't have the same ability to, to sort of pressure. But the second reason is really ideological. And, and in the U.S., um, and you see this in Europe as well, uh, many folks on the right, uh, conservatives, they have this old-fashioned sort of view, uh, k- kind of an Adam Smithian point of view that, you know, small businesses are good because they just go out and they compete in the marketplace, and big businesses in, are, uh, embrace what's called crony capitalism. So, and it's true, and it's not true about crony capitals, but it is true that when you have a bigger firm, that you need more public-private partnerships. You need, there's more of us kind of state and business alignment to grow the economy and achieve goals. For a lot of the libertarians on the right, they're like, oh, we don't want that at all. Businesses should just be small and do their thing and, you know, no, no, no political power. Um, on the left, uh, and this is particularly true in Europe, um, you, you really have seen this rise in the last 10 or 15 years in the U.S. on the Democratic Party side of a much more of a progressive or populist left who really just despises big business. Uh, they just, they just, they, 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 they equate big business to, uh, you know, with, with all of the sins in the U.S. economy. So a good example of that is, is a guy Robert Reich, who was uh, Secretary of Labor in the Clinton Department, the Clinton administration. He's uh, sort of a public intellectual at Berkeley, and you know he. He, he has he writes these books which are you know filled with filled with massive numbers of errors but it doesn't really matter to Reich because he believes what he believes and he's going to tell you what he uh, so he in, in Reich's view if if we had some fewer big businesses there'd be less profits and they could go to the workers and you know again the the, the if you rely on evidence the evidence suggests that just simply not going to be the case that there there wouldn't be there'd be almost zero if none. Uh, kind of redistribution because of that. But so the populists on both the left and the right in Europe, I'm sorry, the populists on the, on the left in Europe and the U.S., they've really taken on as a cause. Uh, we don't like big corporations. 
Um, I, I think another factor also is that, uh, you know, 50 years ago in the U.S., um, there, was, there was a famous quote in the U.S. by uh, the CEO of General Motors in, 19, in the early 50s was nominated to be defense secretary by President Eisenhower. And uh, so General Motors was the largest corporation in the world at the time. And, and a member, a senator, asked, uh, asked this guy, his name was uh, Charles Wilson, so Mr. Wilson, could you, uh, what happens if you're a defense secretary and, and there's a conflict where something you want to do as a defense secretary would hurt General Motors, how would you deal with that? And he said, well, Senator, I, I can't imagine in my, you know, ever that that would happen because what's good for General Motors is good for the U.S. and what's good for the U.S. is what's good for General Motors. There was a lot of truth to that back then. Um, General Motors was largely a U.S. company, and if they grew, the U.S. grew. If the U.S. grew, they'd have more cars to sell. That's much less true today with the rise of global corporations. And uh, most corporations, big corporations today, whether they're, you know, European corporations uh, like, you know, Daimler or American corporations like GM, they're global, and they have global production, and, and their interests now are much more global and so I think that has really hurt the cause, if you will, because people look at big companies and say they're not loyal to to our state, whether it's Europe or Portugal. But, you know, Ricardo's little shop with 30 workers, they're not going to China. They're loyal. They're part of our you know, social fabric. So we're going to support them. I think that's another factor that's played a big role. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, people also care about certain types of jobs because, for example, even more so unqualified people. Uh, one of the slogans, let's say, of the of Trump's campaign back in 2016 was to bring back manufacturing jobs to the U.S., but because they have been outsourced to China, Bangladesh, and mainly countries in uh, southeastern Asia. But, uh, I mean, is it the case that there are certain types of jobs that, uh, I mean, add a big toll on people's economy because they can no longer perform them on, in the U.S. or in Europe or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, again, uh, I think that's probably less due to size. Um, there were, the U.S. lost an enormous number. We lost about 50,000, 45,000 manufacturers, firms yeah. uh, that closed. And, and most of them were small uh, in the 2000s uh, and because of Chinese competition. Um, so, uh, so I think it really, again, you know, large firms in general, they, they have a safer work environment. Uh, they, they have you know, HR specialists and engineers that worry about that stuff. Not to say that small firms are inherently unsafe or anything like that, um, but you know, I think there was there were lots of things. The U.S. In, in my view, we, we were good to offshore. We were right to offshore. Uh, just certain, you know, I, I don't think many people in Europe or the United States would want to sew shoes all day. Uh, it's a pretty tedious, hard, hard job, and uh, there are people in you know Bangladesh or wherever where they're willing to do that because that for them it's a big step up because their life is so impoverished otherwise. Um, so there's nothing wrong with offshoring sort of lower skill, uh, you know, if you will, bad jobs. The challenge for the U.S., more than Europe, frankly, was that we also offshored good jobs and higher wage jobs and 
more complex jobs, and we didn't have a, a domestic manufacturing strategy. Uh, so, yeah, that's you know that was partly what Trump was trying to get at uh, in terms of his focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another very interesting thing is that recently new startup rates have been falling. Why is that? Well, I can only speak for the United States because I do know that data uh, very, very well. We issued, ITF issued a report about two weeks ago looking at that. Uh, the, ri- the rate of new startups has fallen, as you, as you rightly note, since the late 70s. And many, it's almost now a matter of faith in the U.S. to say, well, that's because of monopoly. It's because of too much concentration, too much market power. And they've made, these giant companies have made it hard and, and, and played unfairly and so that the average mom and pop store or whatever company can't get off the ground. It turns out that's just simply not true. Um, we did a correlation where we looked at what was the change in, 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 in concentration ratio? In other words, how much do the top four firms in an industry have of the market or the top eight firms or whatever, or the top 20 firms? What was the, to look at the change in that out of 250 different industries the government collects data on, and then look at the change in startup rate. And the correlation was zero. So there's no relationship. So there were some industries where the startup rate went down, and yet the concentration ratio went down. There are some where the concentration ratio went up and the startup rate went up. It's just, it it, just nothing, no relationship. The main reason why the startup rate went down in the U.S., it's, uh, it, at least in terms of the overall startups, it, it's really a story of retail. Uh, in the U.S., you know, 40 years ago, a lot of people would open up a little hardware store or they, or they might open up a little store selling some things. You know, in the U.S., the growth of, of big retailers. Now, not by the way, to be clear, not retailers with any kind of market power. Uh, like even, you know, Amazon has, is, is, you know, they're, they're not even the fourth largest retailer in the U.S. Uh, uh, they're just, they don't have market power. But what happened in retail was partly because of use of information technology and advanced logistics is these companies could get such efficiencies by being bigger. They could sell more things. Customers like that. They'd save money by shopping there. They'd have a big, big, wide selection by shopping there. And so it just made it harder for small companies to break in uh, unless you differentiated yourself. You know, we're, we're, we're selling certain kind of things that their big guys aren't selling. So the notion somehow that, you know, that the startup slowdown has been a problem, I think, is, is actually the opposite. The startup slowdown is a reflection of a positive thing, which is firms getting economies of scale in sectors where they didn't do that. In the first half of the 20th century, most of the economies of scale were in manufacturing, which is why you had the growth of manufacturing firms. In the second half of the 20th century, you started partly from information technology in sectors like insurance and banking and retail and other sectors like that. Um, One last thing that's critical is I don't frankly care one way or the other whether we have uh, you know, John and Sally open up a, a open up a little pizza shop. I don't care if they want to do it. Great, that's you know their business, and more, more power to them. They're working hard. Great, but as a societal matter, I don't care. What I do care about are would John and Sally who want to open up a company making uh, 
you know, some kind of new nanotechnology product that could grow to be a thousand person company and sell all around the world. That, that company I care about a lot. In other words, what I care about are startups that want to become bigger. Uh, that most startups in the U.S. are, are what are called lifestyle startups. Uh, the man or woman, they want to do it because, you know, they either don't want to work for anybody else or kind of the best thing they can do. But there's a smaller set of companies that start up because they want to get big. Uh, and then when you look at the data there, particularly from uh, data from Scott Stern at MIT, those kind of startups, uh, U.S. is doing quite well in uh, our high-tech startup rate is the same as it was 10 years ago. It hasn't hasn't diminished. So I'm not really worried about uh, the, you know, I, I think this, the, I think the startup decline is really a, it's a red herring. Uh, the main thing you want to look at are the startups that want to grow and they seem to be doing fine. Mm -hmm. And when subsidizing startups, should governments, uh, I mean, should governments pay attention to the kinds of startups that are more successful nowadays? I mean, the types of services and products that people care more about nowadays and that probably would lead a startup to be successful in today's world or, or not? Yeah, so I think if you're, if you're a government and, you, and, and you're interested in growing your economy, uh, whether it's through productivity or innovation or competitiveness, uh, and, and you see startups as playing a role in that, which they absolutely do play a role in that, mm -hmm. you want to be focusing on startups that are in what are called traded sectors. So I wouldn't be focusing on a startup that it wants to find, you know, it, it's a, I'm opening up a hair salon for women. Um, that's not traded. It, it, you're going you're gonna to go down the, you know, you're going to go a mile to get your hair done, and, or you're not. I would be focusing on traded sector startups. So those things like software or, uh, I don't know, I mean, I'm not going to, robotics, uh, a whole set of things where somebody says, I want to, you know, I'm in Lisbon and I want to create this company. And I look at this as I'm going to be selling all over Europe and maybe North America and Asia within three years or five years. Those are the kinds of startups. Um, you know, when I was in Lisbon about 10 years ago, uh, might have been around then, and I gave a talk on, on technology. Uh, there was a little sort of display, uh, you know, some startups that were part of this conference, and, I, and there was one company, and they made, uh, they were using cork uh, in really creative 3D printed cork. I thought that was the coolest thing I'd never seen. Uh, and and they, they were making cork chairs. That was a good startup. In my, I, don't know, I don't know if they're still in existence, but to me, that was a cool startup. They're using technology to do something with a traditional uh, advantage that Portugal's had. And then really beautiful design chairs, 3D printed, selling those all around the world. You know, as opposed to uh, somebody who decides they want to open up a little cafe uh, on a street in Lisbon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and since we are talking about Lisbon, in our email exchange, you mentioned that quote, Portugal has real problems regarding its size-based economic policies. So uh, we've already talked a little bit about Europe. Is Portugal worse in that manner or not? I think it is worse. Uh, it's certainly worse than the European average. There may be individual countries in Europe that are worse, but I'm basing a lot of this off of a, of a, off of a study by a couple of Portuguese economists who I don't remember their name, but it's in the book. Um, 
they found, for example, that from 1986 to 2006, the average firm size in Portugal went from about 16 workers down to about nine workers. That's pretty bad. <laughs> uh, if you think about the U.S., average workers, average firm size went up probably about 20% over that period to about 20 workers, so 22 workers. So um, U.S. firms are just bigger now than, than in Portugal. And the reason that's bad is because these smaller firms, they don't have the scale, they don't have the capital, they don't have the reach to become more globally competitive. They're less productive. Um, and some of that, not all of it, some of it was due to uh, Portugal, you know, joining the European Union and having euro problems, uh, currency problems and competitiveness problems. But some of it is also due to just explicit government policies Say, you know, we're going to make it harder on larger firms than on smaller firms. Uh, those things matter. And, and I, I, to me, that's one of the biggest things the Portuguese government could just do would be to change all of that, just move to size neutrality. And and say, you know, whatever size you are, you're going to have the same rules. Um, but yeah, no, to me, that, that was striking that, 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 you know, that's a huge, huge in just in 20 years, that's almost cutting the average firm size in half. That's, that's really, really bad. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I haven't asked you yet is, is this in any way a partisan issue? I mean, is this something that falls more on the left or the right side of the aisle? I mean, people defending small businesses and being against big businesses or not? Yes and no. I think in the U.S. and to some extent in Europe, you, you have, again, the, the sort of left wing side, left-wing advocates uh, who have now sort of taken this on as um, we're against big companies and we're for small companies because we want to side with the people, we, 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 you, know, you know, solidarity with the proletariat kind of notion. So to some extent, that's true. But if you look in the U.S., for example, and you look at um, the AFL-CIO, the, the, the overarching uh, labor union umbrella in the U.S., um, they don't have this kind of small is beautiful thing uh, because the labor unions in the U.S. Number one, many of them, you know, the the odds of being a of of being a unionized worker are much higher in a large firm. I mean, large firms. That's the other thing that progressives don't care about anymore. But you know, they don't care that much about unionization. Uh, again, I'm talking in the U.S. context. Large firms are much more unionized now, less than they used to be, but they're much more unionized than small firms are. So the, the sort of, I don't want to call it the worker left in the U.S. is much more sympathetic to large firms. It's really kind of the more identity politics uh, left, uh, um, you know, the sort of green types, uh, the the, you know, the, the, the hardcore Bernie Sanders types, the progressive Bernie Sanders types that, you know, we're going to have, you know, local, you know, everybody's going to work in a small worker-owned co-op and uh, it'll all be beautiful. Um, so yeah, in that sense, it's partisan. But on the other hand, you, you, you know, you had the, the Speaker of the House, the Republican Speaker of the House um, before he left, um, Paul Ryan, and Paul Ryan wrote an op-ed for Forbes magazine that was titled Down with Big Business. Now, why did Paul Ryan, well, you know, he, ran, he was vice presidential candidate for Mitt Romney. 
why did he say that? And he said it because, well, you know, the Republican Party stands for free markets. We don't want government and business in bed with each other. So I see it as not so much left and right, but really much more about this context that Mike and I talked about in the last chapter of overall kind of political economy. We framed it as what we support as national developmentalism. So in other words, the goal of the state when it comes to economic policy should be to actively work to develop economies uh, the way we did in the U.S. under Alexander Hamilton back in the you know, late 1700s and, and others as well. Um, so in that sense, I don't think it's partisan. I think it's more about sort of what do you see as the role of government? Do you see it as kind of, you know, minimal and, 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 and less intrusive or do you see it as more the role of government is, is to help develop economies as opposed to just regulate economies. Mm -hmm. Do you think that perhaps one of the reasons why it's easy for people to be for small business and against big business is the fact that uh, there's a sense of lost community here? I mean, that people don't feel that, that they, I mean, don't feel uh, that what they're doing in big business is that meaningful in comparison with small businesses. And there's that thing that people like to go to a particular small shop and they know the owner and they know the people who work there. I mean, does that make sense in any way? I, I absolutely uh, think it does make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, to be clear, I mean, we make it quite clear in the book that we're talking about economic values. We're, uh, we're not, who are we to say that that's a good thing or a bad thing? All we're talking about in the book is saying, if you want to, uh, to maximize economic outcomes, productivity, innovation, competitiveness, you know, you're better off having size neutrality. Now, for most People, there are other values than just, you know, take-home pay. Uh, people have different values. Part of it is maybe some people have a value of, I want to work in a more collegial, small environment. I mean, I, I work in a small firm, if you will. I mean, we have 22 workers or whatever at ITIF. I, I don't work at a corporate think tank, you know, with 500 workers. Uh, and that's nice. I like that. Uh, and, and I think the people who work with me like it. Um, so that's one. The other is actually on the consumer side where, and I think you see this more in Europe than in the U.S., where, you know, there's a certain, you know, you go down the street, you you, you know, the shop owner, uh, they're friendly. Also, there's kind of a nice sort of urban ambiance of small firms. and I, I get that. I, I guess what I, so we're not at all saying that, you know, we should be focused on just bigness. But I, I guess my point is I don't, think there's anything wrong with that. I just don't want the government to be putting the thumb on the scale. I, I, I don't think there's enough of a rationale to say that we're going to subsidize Fred or Sally to have their little shop. I mean, if consumers really want Fred or Sally's shop, then they should be able to have and, and shop at Fred and Sally's shop. But if they don't, you know, ultimately, most Americans, uh, particularly working Ameri working class Americans, um, money means something to them, <clears throat> you know. A lot of times this argument about, oh, isn't it nice to shop at little small firms? It's, it's like it's made by people who are in the you know, upper half of the income quartile, uh, you know, income half. Uh, I, I was thinking, you know, I, I live in Bethesda, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington. You know, it's you know, basically professional class people who have money, you know, some money. 
And I always laugh when I would go to the little shopping district we would have, you know, half a mile from my house. I'd walk up there sometimes with my daughter. And there was a store that sold custom-made, hand, handmade, hand-baked dog biscuits. <laughs> and there was another store that, that had, like, you know, really good tea. And I'm a tea drinker. So I went in there once, and I, oh, it looks nice. Give me a little, you know, I don't know, an ounce of this or a little tea, $22. And I'm like, I'm never shopping here again. Uh, and I'm not I'm sure as hell not going to feed my dog, you know, handmade yuppie dog biscuits. So, yeah, look, if people want to shop there, that's that's their business. It's their money. Feel free. But, but why am I, as a taxpayer, subsidizing them because they pay lower taxes than they would if there weren't these preferences? Uh, that's really my main point. Mm -hmm. Uh, but another thing that people mention, at least when I discuss this with people, is that perhaps they associate small business with things that are produced locally, and then they associate that with, uh, the, uh, with uh, improving the economy locally and of the country in general. And, I mean, when they think about small business, they maybe think about... Uh, international companies and products and services that come from outside foreign services and products. So, I mean, the, uh, does that argument make sense in any way? No, I don't believe it does. And here's why. A couple of things. One is, um, imagine that the you know that you know Europe uh, or Portugal, whatever, is okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have really, really high import restrictions so that we have all these local businesses. But any company in Portugal that wants to export, they get to export for free. No other country does this. Uh, so it's sort of like a little prisoner's dilemma thing. Well, you know, there are lots and lots of companies in Portugal and in Europe that rely on exports, you know, export within the European uh, EU market, exports outside of that. And so if every local economy decided they only wanted locally made goods, they were only going to shop locally, it would mean that uh, their companies that want to sell outside would shrink. So you'd, some would rise, the local ones, but the exporters would shrink and you'd be, back to, you'd be back to square one, if you will. But you'd be worse than that because as you reduce uh, market size, which is what would happen, every, you know, you'd almost be going back to sort of a feudalistic uh, Middle Ages in Europe, where you know Lisbon had was its own economy and Venice was its own economy, and, and there was a reason Europe became the richest place in the world was because it had the most, the, the strongest and most uh, vibrant internal and even external markets that get, let allowed scale. So, you know, I just don't buy that. Uh, I, I think it, it. I think it. It, it runs the risk of just, you know, having an economy that, that, that ultimately cannot be competitive. You know, if you look at Portugal's problem, Portugal's core problem was it lost the ability, it, it lost too many firms that, that couldn't be globally competitive anymore. Now, why is Germany doing so well? Germany's doing well because they have firms that are globally competitive, and that's an engine that drives the economy, it brings in money so that people can go to buy their dog biscuits at the, at the store in, in, in Stuttgart. Um, so I don't really buy that argument uh, that, that, you know, you, you, you want to be essentially local protectionist to, to have your economy grow. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because uh, if the countries that have 
more international business are the ones that grow more economically. I mean, at the same time, at least in Europe and the United States as well, people are still pushing for these small businesses, beautiful idea. And even in Germany, I mean, I lived there for eight months. They also have a, a, a very strong mentality defending small business and they have uh, I mean, they, they, they have very big subsidies, for example, agricultural businesses and things like that. So, I, I mean, it's a bit of a contradiction here sometimes. Well, you know, you, you look at the U.S., for example, and I'm not saying the U.S. is the paragon of virtue and always right, but there are a few things that we get right and there are a few things that we do better, I think, than Europe. And, and one of them is agriculture. Now, again, to me, that's a choice. So in the U.S., uh, I don't know what the number is, but it's you know, less than 2% of workers uh, are employed on the farm. Why is that? Because we have big, big farms that are incredibly mechanized. And we use, in some cases, you know, bio, biotech crops, which grow better and you know, all that stuff. Europe has decided that they want to protect small farmers. It's not, to be clear, it's not they want to protect farming. They want to protect small farmers. So, you know, I was in Brussels a while back. You know, I go to Brussels every year or so for meetings and things. And, and I remember uh, I was going to meet with somebody in the commission and, and, and they called me up and they said, well, you, you might not, we might not be able to have a meeting because there's a, there's a demonstration of farmers driving their tractors, and I don't know if it's safe. And I'm like, I don't think farmers are going to beat me up. I think I can go down to the, the, the commission. So I did. But there were like, you know, thousand farmers driving their tractors in, in Europe demanding protection. Uh, I, I, I get that. I mean, I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying that these, this is easy politically. I, I'm not saying that at all. It's hard politically. Uh, but what I get frustrated with is when people, people should at least say that having fewer farmers and bigger farms would be good economically for Europe. They should at least say that. And they don't. They fall back on all, all, all this other thing. So that just goes for sector after sector in Europe. I mean, the Germans, for example, you know, one of the reasons they support they have this sort of small business policy thing is because there's lots of small businesses who fight for that. And what's bizarre to me about that is nobody's taking them to task. So you're asking government to give you all these favors, all these subsidies, all these protections, which by definition hurt everybody else in, in Germany. They hurt workers, they hurt consumers. Why is that noble? Uh, why is that okay to do that? Well, it's because you're small. Yeah. So you know, I, I think that's a big, that's a big, big reason, and, and and I think I think ultimately what could happen would be a you could see a different political like for example uh, Macron has tried to make some of these changes in France I, th I think you know as if the economy in Europe stagnates as it has been uh, or even gets into crisis you you could you know you could see some movement in that direction you know in, in Greek in Greece for example you had you know. It, it wasn't it wasn't a coincidence that the countries in Europe that had financial crises were the countries that had the smallest firms, Italy, Spain, Greece. I mean, these were all small firm economies and they were just it was harder for them to, to, to be successful globally. So there may be pressures that move policymakers more in the direction of size neutrality. Mm -hmm. 
In terms of the job market, one of the questions that people deal and worry a lot about nowadays is technological unemployment, because with the development particularly of more and more complex AI systems uh, and artificial intelligence in general, uh, people are worried that many jobs will be lost, particularly the more unqualified ones. Do you think that big business is particularly well suited to deal with that kind of problem? I mean, is it that big business uh, adapts more easily to these changes? Well, I think, number one, I think big business is... Um is going to be using these technologies more effectively than small businesses. They're going to be adopting them more. Um, and I do think that you're going to see uh, a lot of automation of, of functions that weren't automated before, like what people call robotic process automation for routinized uh, office tasks. I mean, there's a lot of office workers. All they do is they take some number, they press another thing, and it goes, you know, it's like a machine could do that at some point. So I, I think that that is going to happen and it's going to be more that large businesses do it than small and for certain industries like that it means that bigger firms will gain more market share and smaller firms will lose market share. But um, I think we have to put that in the context of, of everything. So in the United States for example and in Europe, European productivity growth used to be faster than American productivity growth up until, say, the 80s or so. And since then, it's been lower. Uh, the biggest, the, the biggest problem in Europe, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, very clear about this in my mind, is low productivity growth. European productivity growth is just terrible. Now, U.S. isn't much better. Uh, U.S. productivity growth is bad, too, but it's a little better than Europe. In the U.S., we had uh, productivity growth, labor productivity growth. In other words, how much does aver the average worker produce a year or an hour compared to before? Um, that was about two and a half times faster in the 1960s than what we have now. So it was around, a little bit around over 3% now. It's a little bit above 1%. Uh, in the 1960s, we had the lowest unemployment rate almost in American history. Yeah, we had super fast productivity growth. Well, why was it? Because companies would use technology to automate, they would then cut costs, they would cut prices, consumers had more money, they'd go and then spend that money and they'd spend it on something else. So I absolutely reject the notion that there's going to be technological unemployment, absolutely reject that. I, I think for, for two reasons. One is the technology that everybody's talking about, it's not, it's not nuclear, you know, it's, it's not a nuclear bomb of the economy, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not sort of this amazing thing. It's not all powerful. It's really quite limited. So AI will do certain things that are can't do today. It's like it can't do everything. Robots will do certain things. It won't do everything. There's just lots and lots of things that are really complicated. I mean, try having somebody come in and put down a tile floor in your house. Try having a robot do that. Um, so I think the technology will get better. It will raise productivity, but it's not going to be a massive giant explosion, if you will. And then secondly, even if it does do that, which I hope it will, there's just no evidence. The reason people think it's going to lead to joblessness is they don't consider second order effects. And the second order effects are the most important. Productivity benefits don't get put and buried in the field. They get 
passed on to consumers or workers, in, in most cases both, wages go up, prices go down, people then spend it on other things. So, you know, perhaps one of the fastest growing sectors in the in Europe could be, uh, you know, therapeutic massage or, or yoga classes or hiring a personal trainer or, you know, who knows? Uh, you know, as people get more money, they, they, they go to gyms. Uh, now, you can't do that in the COVID world, but uh, you know, or, 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 or they might decide, uh, you know, they're going to buy, uh, uh, you know, better wine and they're buying three dollar, three year old bottles of wine. And now they're going to buy five year old bottles of wine. You know, I don't know. I don't people will spend the money on how they want to spend the money and that's going to create jobs. So so I'm not worried about that. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I do think we need to do is uh, is make sure that workers who are in one occupation or one area get help to move to another but in Europe, for example, the Commission, European Commission, has shown that over 30% of European workers today have too much education for their particular occupation. I think, boy, oh boy, that's a problem. You know, you, you, you clearly, a person like that has clearly has more skills than they need and, and would be probably happier on a job that uses those skills. Otherwise, why would they have gotten them? And automation that automates, excuse me, technology that automates lower skilled jobs will mean, by definition, there'll be more jobs that are better and more interesting for uh, that 30% of Europeans right now who are uh, overskilled. Yeah. Are there any good examples of countries that have size neutrality policies set in place? Um, <clears throat> there aren't really a lot. I think a place like Singapore, for example, which is really doing well. I mean, they 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 help small firms, but the way that the, the, here's the difference between helping small firms. There's two ways to help small firms. It'd be, it'd be like helping a uh, you know a player on on a, on a, what you would call a football team. You, you could you could make the other players wear lead weights on their on their ankles, so that would slow them down. <clears throat> you could give the worker you know the you could give the soccer player, the small soccer player, some drugs so that they can outperform everybody. You can, that's one way. That's what most countries do. Or you could help that small soccer player, uh, you know, train and work out and, and hone their shot. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's what Singapore does. You know, their, their small business policies are about how do you get smaller companies to become more productive or more innovative rather than <clears throat> how do we just subsidize them to just keep being small and inefficient. But overall, that the small is beautiful notion is really, uh, you know, it's pretty widespread. Mm-hmm. And since it's pretty widespread, my last question will be, how would the big is beautiful campaign work, particularly to try to convince the electorate that big is good or beautiful? Well, I think it would work <clears throat> in the following way. Um, I think there'd be two parts of the campaign to, to say. One would be, uh, if we want to succeed uh, in Europe against uh, the threat of China, uh, which I think Europeans overall vastly underestimate what that threat is, uh, the Chinese are coming for the European economy. Uh, there's a good study by, I believe it was the Mercator Center, Mercatus Center, I forget, in Germany. I think it was them. And they looked at which countries were most vulnerable to the main China 2025 plan for technology. Uh, and Europe was much more vulnerable than the U.S. Uh, and particular countries in Europe. So I think, number one, you, you cannot 
thrive. You cannot succeed against all this unfair uh, subsidized competition from, from China unless you have firms that are a reasonable size. I mean, Italy's a case in point. Italy used to be a pretty dynamic economy, but, but it, was, it was based on sort of small artisanal craft firms, which were fine until China, and they were decimated. So you have to have a certain amount of scale to compete with China. That's, I think, argument number one. Argument number two would be um, that, um, look, we, we want better jobs, we want a better work environment, uh, and that just, just sort of telling that story a little more that you know, large firms tend to treat their workers better, they pollute less, uh, you know, they're, they're, frankly, they're better for the environment. So as, as, as climate change becomes more important, thing, you look at the companies that have made commitments to go to zero carbon, or, or actually there are certain companies now that really kind of the, the emerging wave of that is we're going to become new, carbon neutral for our entire existence. So we're going to go back and take all the carbon that we emitted uh, or bought, you know, electric, and we're going to, we're going to, you know, go negative carbon to make up for all of that. Small firms aren't doing that. They're not doing that. Those are big firms that, that only have the kind of commitment and scale and, and, and to do that. So I think that would, that would, that would be another, another way to push it. So kind of competitiveness and then also um, social factors. Mm-hmm. But, it, mm-hmm. but it would be hard, right? Because if most people believe that small, big business is better, I mean, in politics, at least uh, in my experience and of what I've read, it seems that when once people have made up their minds, it's really, really hard to convince them otherwise. Right? There, you're 100 percent right. You know, I don't, I don't want to say this is easy. Uh, I think another part we, we talk about in the book is that big companies have to do their share, uh, that do their job. I mean, if you look at some of the big scandals in the United States. Uh, Enron was a company. Uh, there have been a bunch of big companies that have done uh, scandalous things. Uh, they've cheated. They, they've hurt people. Um, you know, the, the big business community uh, needs to come out very, very strongly. I mean, look at Volkswagen, for example. Yeah. The big business, other big businesses need to come out and say, this is wrong. It will not be tolerated. Uh, now there are lots of small firms that do the same thing, but nobody notices because you know nobody nobody notices when a small firm cheats, uh, or very few people notice when a big firm cheats and does something you know awful. Uh, everybody knows that. So no, I don't disagree with you. It's going to be hard, but I think again, it's it's more at the margin uh, as a, as a new regulation is coming about. Could could it be more size neutral? Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm not under any illusion that somehow Mike and our agenda of size neutrality is going to happen, you know, with with the Biden administration or the next you know, next Trump administration, whoever wins, or the next EU uh, uh, government, uh, the next parliament, or whatever. But I think we we got to tell the story and hope that some people will listen. Yeah. So let's end on that note, Dr. Atkinson. Just before we go, are there, are there any places on the internet where people can find you or your work? Sure. So um, I am at, um, uh, so, so I, I work at itif.org uh, and my, um, uh, so, so just, itf.org is the name of the think tank and I'm on Twitter at Rob Atkinson ITIF. That's probably the best place to see me. I, I tweet pretty regularly and uh, 
tweet about this and other issues that are related to that. Okay, so I will include that in the description box of the interview down below so that people can go and check it out. And Dr. Atkinson, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show, and it was really fun to talk to you. Uh, Ricardo, really my pleasure. Thank you, uh, and uh, I appreciate you having me on talking about this important issue. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I have started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. And I would really like to keep doing this in the long run. And so please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there or go to my PayPal links in the description box and you can also make a monthly pledge there or a one-time big donation or several times big donations. It's as you prefer. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. Finally, I would like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and supporters, the main ones, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lauguerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf. Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Max Bailby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert Roberto Inguanzo, Mikel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, uh, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, Sardos France, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, and Dmitry Grigoriev. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, and my executive producers Michel Rujewski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.